No, 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 just you. I can't let everybody see it. They couldn't if they tried. But you're special. You will see her. Behind the hedgerows and rose bushes, beyond the fences and into the clearing where the bumblebees ride on the exhalations of grazing rabbits, and pollen creates fireworks when caught on golden rays of pre-dawn light. She is there. Approach quietly and with an open heart. Magic can tell when you want something from it. It doesn't like to be fooled or used or misunderstood or made to hurry. You have to meet magic where it is and let it take you where you have only dreamed. That's why the others don't like it. They can't control it. And once you have seen it, they can't control you. Knowing there is a world of possibilities beyond your seat at the table makes you less concerned with keeping it. They will say that magic is evil. It's not evil. They're just angry and afraid. She is harmless, and I am harmless. They knew that, but they hunted me anyway. I was an albino deer in an empty glen. Do you want to know why you don't see many white deer? They're different, obvious. Predators find them immediately. They told me I was crazy, that I was a witch, that I hallucinated her, that I made her up for attention, or worst of all, that I was trying to lure children into the woods. I was a monster, a killer of children, a horned scapegoat heaped high with grief and pain. Sometimes unthinkable things happen in this world, and we need to blame someone. So, we sacrifice the different to protect the same. Of course, there was never any evidence, and eventually they lost interest. But I never spoke of her again. In fact, I never spoke at all. Until now. I saw you out there, standing on the edge of a crowd, turning cartwheels in the clover, talking to your chosen cast of characters when you thought no one was looking. And I knew I had found a new keeper of my secret. You see her, don't you? I knew that you would. It takes a special person to see a unicorn. So anytime they make you feel small, hold on to that. You see magic. They see fear. I'm Holly. I'm Leslie. And we would be dead. probably know this but at our local zoo the cape may county zoo the white deer yeah they take them in i know i love them he is my favorite i have like a hundred pictures on my phone of those deer yeah i love them so Mm -hmm. much because i think they look like unicorns yeah they're so cool so when i was a kid 
Some people who are listening will know this story. Not everybody, obviously. Um, But I was like obsessed with unicorns. And I thought that, or I didn't think, I imagined that two of them lived in my parents' hedges and I would talk to them. I had a lot of imaginary friends. Jealous. (laughs) No, Brian would never play with you. It was the worst. (laughs) Well, Brian played with me, but he wasn't a real imaginary friend. I just made him up. (laughs) I mean, I made them up too, but like, but you... They got in there. I know. I didn't I didn't understand imaginary friends. Maybe I thought they were real. One. Uh, I wish they were. Yeah. I don't know. But I always thought there were unicorns in my hedges. A lot of people know this about me. And um, I, I struggled so hard to write the monologue this week because, like, I do not play Dungeons & Dragons. No? I probably like it, to be honest with you. It's all about writing stories. So I can't wait till I get to my portion because mm-hmm. there's a clear part where... It describes you and me. Oh, I love it. Specifically. Oh, and that's so I fun. can't wait to tell you. <laughs> I have, for our host mortem, I have the whole Stranger Things cast of characters and what their, like, characters are. Oh, nice. It's fun. But I saved that for patron content. Ooh-ooh. Anyway. Hey, Leslie. Hey, Holly. Hey, Fiends. Boy, oh, boy. We have another fun episode this week. Well, I'm just I mean, delighted. I mean, like, two in a row? What? Who are we? Some person who has a fun podcast? What? That I can't think of? <laughs> that was cool, Holly. <laughs> mm-hmm. Good job. Who's fun? Um, I don't know. I listened to Nicole Byer's podcast. She's fun. She's been Justin Long. Well, this is a Justin Long fan account, so yeah. obviously. <laughs> obviously. Who do we think we are? The Olsen twins? <laughs> oh, boy. They are fun. <laughs> Well, we're not we're not those people, but we're having a good time. We sure are. Mm-hmm. So while we do talk about some pretty awful events this week, we're just dipping a toe into the waters of the satanic panic of the 1980s and 90s in the United States and talking more about the moment in time when it became focused on a pastime of everyone's favorite Hawkins High School students, Dungeons and Dragons. Bum, bum, bum. I know, I feel like there should be fanfare. Maybe John will add some. We'll see. That's right, Stranger Things fans. It was real. No, not the whole like other dimension, brain-thirsty monsters, Kate Bush saving teens with her angsty crooning thing. I mean, I don't think any of that happened, but really, who's to say? I was too. I wasn't even born yet. Was I? I don't know. When were you born? 87. Not yet. Very soon. Very soon you're a person in Stranger Things. It was just an idea. I was like a full kindergartner, but I was not their age. So I was like Baby Holly. Oh, my God. (gasps) Baby Holly. It's me. That's who I am. That's me. (laughs) (laughs) My age does track to that character. Yeah. (laughs) Guys, um, I don't know how to tell you this. (laughs) It's me. (laughs) Keep it quiet because otherwise I'll have to fight off the press. Oh, my goodness. Anyway, what I can say is that at the same projected time as Stranger Things is taking place, the United States was gripped in a full-scale panic. Law enforcement, remember I said law enforcement, was convinced that cults of child raping, child murdering, animal sacrificing, pro-suicide, ritual sacrificing, goat-man-loving, devil-worshipping Satanists that's a mouthful, but it's all in there, were bubbling up in every state. Hmm. They were on the loose, taking children at will and summoning the dark forces with their seductive role-playing games and dice. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, uh, that's 
seductive. Yeah. Dice. I mean, you'll tell me. <laughs> Maybe I will. <laughs> Did the devil actually take up residence in a bunch of little towns? Was he lurking in the bodies of people who had previously lived quiet lives in harmony with the small children they encountered? No, of course not. But people were scared. And where there's fear, there's panic. And where there's panic, there needs to be blame. And then we have ourselves a good old-fashioned witch hunt. Right. But, like, Holly, like, what What if he is? I don't know. You could talk to some QAnon people. They strongly believe that is true. Okay, okay. Thank you for the resource. You're so welcome. There's a million of them. Great. They're all online. Okay. And speaking of witches, which I didn't intend as a segue to the QAnon people, <laughs> but it does work, so yeah. that's fine. Halloween is just around the corner. Oh, thank God. Okay, no, it's not. But, like, I wait for it all year, so to me, it's pretty close. We're mm-hmm. almost in August. That's super close to October. I mean, if we're celebrating, did it did it pass? Because we, we're celebrating Christmas in July. June. Today is <laughs> the 20th, and in five days, that's... The, do I have to do a Christmas case? <laughs> Leslie, I can't do it. I have everything planned out. <laughs> Maybe I'll give you some other Christmas crime. So content. I would say that it, because if Christmas in July is in five days, mm-hmm. then Halloween. Yeah. Well, the first Thanksgiving and then Hall- <sighs> Halloween is now. Oh, boy. <laughs> <laughs> so it's Halloween. Like it's Halloween in July, people. Get your shit together. And I don't need to be looking like a hag before I even put on my spooky makeup. I have such a good um, idea for a costume this year. Okay. Too. I'll tell you later. And it does not involve greenish face skin and under eye circles. So, okay. How's your skin faring, Leslie? Um, not great because no. it is getting a tint of green. Well, green, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It happens. Mm-hmm. We live in like the dark, just sad. Like, I'm looking so algae. So algae. Not great. It's not. I mean, I'm by the. I'm by it's the like beach, a pool but... when it's hot for too long. Yeah. Bad scene. People keep throwing me back in the ocean. Like, <laughs> Get out of here. <laughs> mm-hmm. So, like, I don't know. Are we going to be ready for some fall live shows? Oh. What are we going to do well, with ourselves? You know what? Well, Just to be sure, I've heard that a little non-invasive... <gasps> Wait. Validation. What else is it? Hill worth dying on. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's the complete title. Um, this and kind that's of the brand. That is the brand. That's our brand. This therapy can get us from hot mess to hot damn in no time. Hot damn. Hot damn. And lucky for us, our fiends can give us a little sip from this fountain of youth. Mm. But how? You might be asking yourself while covertly searching eBay for a 12 foot Home Depot skeleton. Just me? No, was, all right. That was just you. I don't know. We all want one. Halloween's coming. It'd be so cool in my yard. Mm-hmm. Anyway, simply head on over to Spotify or Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star rating and or a friendly review. It really is the only thing that can move this podcast forward, and nothing would make us happier than moving forward. More ratings and reviews means more opportunities for us, and that means more content for you. And if you want more, we would be dead in your life. But you don't want to hang in there until we are overrun by masses of rabid fans. Oh. Which is any day now, obviously. Right. It's going to happen. But I know that sometimes we all feel impatient. hmm You can support us over on Patreon. There for just a few dollars a month, you will gain access to all of our 30-minute horror movies, special patron mini-sodes, our weekly after-show host, Mortem, which is now video and just audio 
for those of you who prefer the podcast format. There are giveaways, special merch offers, chances to Zoom with us and other fun patrons like us. You'll get a gift in the mail, an on-air toast dedicated just to you, and more. Really, you guys, we wouldn't sound like we do without our patrons. They have outfitted our entire studio. Yeah? Yeah. So much of what we are is because you guys support us, and we appreciate you so much. We're tolerable because of our patrons. Because of our patrons. Mm-hmm. <laughs> We're not just tolerable. We're great. We are great, but also tolerable. Have you heard some other podcasts? I have, and okay. they're, they're great, but not tolerable. They are not. And if all that is a little much for you, <laughs> you can simply follow us on social media. We are at WouldBeDeadPod wherever content is found. You can like our content, share our content, engage with our content, post about your favorite episodes, let us know when you're listening, tell a friend, tell a neighbor, tell your dungeon master. What's their name, Leslie? Sounds like a sex thing, but it isn't. I literally was like, Carl. <laughs> just kidding. We already have a I Carl. Know. What if it's the this same Carl? Na- this, He's just he like just walking his dog, so but also no dungeon no, master. No, no, no. All right. I mean, our dungeon master this week is Eddie. I have a lot of feelings about Eddie Master. I know. So, yeah. All right. I'm on board with that one. Then your friends and Eddie can become fiends and we can all hang out together. Yay. But, like, no other pretty girls. Bye. I know. Yeah. There can only be a couple, <laughs> like, one to two pretty girls in the group. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. The rest of you have got to stay home. And you just have to join another group. Yeah, that's fine. We can only Another week? Fine. (laughs) Yeah. This week? Not fine. Just kidding. You're all welcome. Of course, everyone is welcome. This is just a silly joke. Lastly, don't forget to share our weekly uh, Missing Monday posts. We just started them recently. um, And they've been gaining some traction for families who really need to kind of get their information back out in the world. Usually, the cases we share are um, missing persons who... Their cases are not entirely cold, but they've been they've been around for a few years, mm-hmm. and their families very much want to get their name like recirculated into the public. So don't forget to share them. That's very helpful, and it's it's very supportive of families that are going through a lot. Also, buy your not a runaway merchandise to support search efforts to bring these people home. I don't know. Do I have anything else? Oh, um, I'm trying very desperately to visit our California fiends in September. I might have Leslie. I might not have Leslie. It depends on what's going on. But if you're in the Southern California slash Orange County area and would like to attend a meetup, please let me know because if I get enough people, we can organize something. Nice. If, if not, the we end would of- be dead. <laughs> That's and have it. a great night. <laughs> bye bye. If not, I'm just hanging out with the ladies that I'm going there to meet up with, and y'all are going to have a sad time. <laughs> I think it's going to be fun. So, Leslie, do you have anything to add before we begin? So, oh my God, yes. I was home today. Okay. And then I went to work. Right. And then I came home from work. Yes, you did. You're not still at work. I'm not still at work. No. And then I came here. Yes, you did. And I don't have anything else to tell you about. (laughs) What a day you had. (laughs) It had everything. It was a beginning, middle, and end. Yeah. It's all we can ask for. All right, then. On with the show. Well, we have a lot of ground to cover this week. 
this story is a ton of little stories woven into one. So we're going to focus more on storytelling and less on a bazillion little details, which is super hard for me because I love to hyper-focus. So we're just going to see what happens. I wish I could hyper-focus. Do you though? I don't know. I don't focus. Um, so I don't, I don't either unless it's obsessive. Is. It's like one obsessive thing and you can't focus on anything else. And it could be useless. Could I hypo-focus? Maybe. I think that's what I do. Is that like no focus? It's like the opposite, like hypothyroid? But it's like a slowed version of focusing. That's like normal. And then all of a sudden, the day is over. And I only got so far. That's normal ADHD. Hyperfocus is when you have that one moment of like, I'm going to look at this one rabbit hole for like 45 minutes. And that's the only thing I can think about. And anything else I have to do is out the fucking window now. The rabbit hole could be like, you're researching something. Or it could be like, I have to clean the sink. Or I have to tweeze my eyebrows. It's something that you just cannot, you have to focus on. I do hyper-focus, but I think I also hypo. I like it. That's a term that you're coining, right? You're congressman. We're working (laughs) on it. Get a pill for that. (laughs) Yeah. We got to start recording our um, pre-podcast chats because we're very smart and eloquent before our podcast. And then I don't know where it goes. Yeah. We have a lot of bills we want to (sighs) write. We sure do. (laughs) Anyway, this week we are covering the Dungeons and Dragons satanic panic hysteria of the 1980s and 90s. So the hit Netflix show Stranger Things touched on this um, in this season's stuff and included quite a few real life references. So we thought we would give the people what they want. And in my mind, that's an explanation, several true stories and a bunch of trivia. That's what the people want, right? Yeah. Yeah, cool. I'm doing it. So to do this, first I'll explain the events and escalation of the satanic panic, then Leslie will explain Dungeons and Dragons, and then we'll put it all together with some real-life events, sew it up with some Stranger Things trivia, and then hopefully, like, you'll see a schooner before your eyes. Oh, yeah. And if you don't get that reference, it's too fucking bad. You get that reference, it's I fine. Do. Mm-hmm. Okay. <laughs> I'm not going to explain it. It's I'm just... just- I'm just waiting for people to be like, I get it. It's just the time of year. You should all get it right now. It's not a sailboat. It's a schooner. Anyway, let's get this party started. The satanic panic is a moral panic consisting of over, and I need you to brace yourself, 12,000 unsubstantiated cases of satanic ritual abuse, which is also referred to as ritual abuse, ritualistic abuse, organized abuse or sadistic ritual abuse. Enjoy those phrases. And this started in the United States in the 1980s, and it spread throughout many parts of the world by the late 90s. We're going to stay in the United States this week, but it does branch out. You uh, asked me about Canada before we started, and actually Canada kicked this whole shebang off. That's what I thought. Yeah, so okay. I think they're a little behind us. Or did, it, it, did it start? Or ahead of us, sorry. Did it st- did it start with that family that was like the... Um, it starts with a book. All of it starts with a book. Right. Okay. I Yeah, because I'm thinking... I, I listened to a podcast that was about a family that had like a, a daycare. That's the McMartin That's family. It. Okay. I talk about that at length coming up. Okay. Um, also, if you guys listen to... And this is... I'm not connected to this podcast. They do not sponsor us. But if you listen to a podcast called Something Was Wrong... They have a whole season devoted to, and this is a subset of Satanic Panic that I don't go into, 
a man whose family, his own children, because he got divorced and his wife accused him of having this satanic cult and like incestually abusing his children. So his children were brainwashed to like recover these memories. They totally ostracized their father. He like is prosecuted. He goes to jail. And then eventually he's out and like has to put his life back together with his children because they realize they have lied about him for a great many years. And it is very revealing. So if you really want to like get onto the pulse of what Satanic Panic did to one specific family, I highly recommend that season of Something Was Wrong. I'll see if I can find maybe two. I don't, I think it's Something Was Wrong. I did not look that up for us this week. I will see what I can do about finding it for you guys. And I'll include a link. Okay, thank you. Yeah, no problem. But it's, it, I was totally floored by it. It's very interesting. So anyway, and really this concept persists today. What do we think QAnon is? If you said real, you might be in the wrong place. <laughs> Sorry. And though it has a jazzier name and a more lurid subject matter, the satanic panic of the 80s and 90s is not entirely dissimilar to other witch hunts we all know and love, like the Salem Witch Hysteria, the Red Scare, which is back when we were terrified of communist Russia, and the Amanda Knox trial. Mm -hmm. Often, when we find ourselves looking to blame a group of people, usually a minority in some way, even if we have created that minority ourselves, when we're looking to blame a group for the world's evils, we start looking for people to blame. And there's usually something going on that we as a country feel blindsided by, which leads us to believe that we are no longer in control and that all hell is breaking loose. And that like, oh my God, the devil is here. That's always the leap we make. We're like, oh no, we're not in control. Oh no, things are going wrong. Oh, the devil. Yeah. I wish I were exaggerating, but I am not. So what was happening in the 1980s that caused the devil to rear his ugly head and try to live just like a little deliciously for once? Just like a little. A couple things, actually. First, in 1980, the book Michelle Remembers was published. This shit is wild. Mm. Michelle Remembers was co-written by Canadian psychiatrist Lawrence Pazder and his patient and future wife, Oh boy. Shady! Michelle Smith. In the book, Lawrence recalls his use of a, a technique called recovered memory therapy, which some of us will have heard of as repressed memories. It's mm -hmm. a little more common in the vernacular for me, at least. And he used this to make crazy, enormous claims about satanic ritual abuse that Michelle had undergone as a child. Now, recovered memory theory would prove itself inval invaluable in, like, the satanic panic madness. And it does it time and time again. I'm not saying it's valuable in real life, but it is valuable to progress a hysteria. And if you're wondering what it is, I will tell you. But I'll start with the disclaimer that it has been discredited and is no longer used, like, anywhere. Recovered memory therapy is a catch-all term for a controversial and scientifically discredited form of psychotherapy that utilizes one or more unproven interviewing techniques, such as hypnosis, guided imagery, and the use of sedative hypnotic drugs to purportedly help patients recall previously forgotten memories. Proponents of recovered memory therapy claim, contrary to evidence, so there's no evidence supporting them, much to the contrary, 
They claim that traumatic memories can be buried in the subconscious and thereby affect your current behavior. And we've all seen this trope used in movies and literature, like people are having some kind of horrible panic attacks or time because they have totally repressed abuse that happened to them as a child or, or some, some other traumatic event. And people who are proponents of recovered memory therapy say that these memories can be recovered through the use of their techniques. Now, recovered memory therapy is not recommended by, like, any group of psychologists or psychiatrists or World Health or anything. It is not deemed ethical or professional by any mental health associations anymore. At one point in time, it was a standard. Now it's like, no, 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 you cannot do that. So basically what happens in this technique is that a psychiatrist or psychologist will hypnotize a patient or drug them into a state where they are extremely suggestible. So there are certain drugs that make you just like you will take suggestions like sodium pentothal, I believe, is one of them. And hypnosis, that's what hypnosis does, actually. A lot of people think, think it brings you into this like altered state, but really just makes you super suggestible. And then through suggestion in this state, they can create these hidden memories that never happened, but they are guided through experiencing them. So to them, they are very real, Hmm. but they never happened. So it's a lot like a coerced confession. Like we've seen cases before where people are like drilled about things or like maybe you just didn't remember that this happened and you get so confused and sleep deprived and stuff that you're like, maybe I didn't remember. It's similar but worse because you're, like, hypnotized or drugged. Right. Which you're not allowed to do in, like, a police setting. So the allegations that came through in Michelle's repressed memories involved reports of physical and sexual abuse of people during occult or satanic rituals. And they were not vague. This phrase is, okay, so just to be clear, this week I am lifting things from, like, general articles online because I have so many different stories to tell, Um, but I will go in and explain them later. So this is a direct quotation from Michelle's experiences. Quote, over months of imprisonment, she, Michelle, is forced to drink urine, eat cannibalized human flesh, bathe in the blood of dismembered babies, participate in ritual murders and endure a cage filled with snakes and spiders. I hate it. I know you do. In the climax of her, whatever we want to call this, Michelle encounters Satan himself in a, quote, feast of the beast, which I'd love to go to, (laughs) organized by her oppressors. But she is ultimately saved by direct intervention of the Virgin Mary. Okay. So, super realistic story. Like, for sure that happened. I guess it could if you live in that world. She's like totally real life, not fanciful at all. Mm -hmm. I mean, where did those, where did these babies come from? Where did the lighter fluid come from? But because the story was presented by a like noted psychologist and a traumatized and very public Michelle herself, this crazy story was taken very seriously. Yeah. For her part, Michelle, though, believed it happened fully Mm -hmm. because it was fed to her in a highly suggestible state. So we need to halt the judgment train on Michelle just a little. Not entirely, but a little because she did do some questionable stuff. But 
For her part, Michelle and her therapist husband were wildly popular after this book gained some kind of momentum. They were on like Oprah and 2020 and like every popular talk show you could find, probably like, I don't know, Maury and whatever else was on at the time. Um, And they spoke at conferences and like they spoke to law enforcement and social workers. They were a very big deal. Michelle remembers the book was even used as, I want you to brace yourself again, training material for social workers who dealt with sexual abuse because they were told that a lot of times sexual abuse had roots in satanic rituals. Mm. And authorities really thought, and I mean police and social workers and judges, really thought that the Church of Satan housed a conspiracy of global satanic cults that included the wealthy and powerful world elite in which children were abducted or bred for human sacrifice, pornography, and prostitution. This is QAnon 100%. And it's just like Glenn and his Birkenstocks just like hanging out. They like go meet after mm-hmm. like an AA meeting. <laughs> what? Church of Satan? Yeah. Oh my God. Like, they're just like, oh, like the, the AA group's I out, know. we can go in. So I I think we're both members of the Satanic Temple at we this are point. Now, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. So that's the one in Salem. It's not the Church of Satan. It's different. The Church yeah. of Satan is Anton LaVey. Yeah. We will do a Satanism whole episode. Don't worry. Mm-hmm. I have a guest I really want. Anyway, this is something super different. If you know a Satanist or if you encounter one, they're probably a very peaceful, very liberal, very like supportive human yes. who like fundraises for local charities and cleans up the local community garden. Like that's what the Satanic Temple people are. So mm-hmm. this is a wild misconception, but they're not breeding people for pornography and human sacrifice. Yeah. That is wild. But in like, so that's the satanic temple, but the church of Satan is... Apparently is, where you breed children for human sacrifice. But, oh yeah. is it, But is there a church of Satan? Yes, there is. That's yeah. like Levian Satanism, I believe. That's yeah. like the... But it's still but centered still, around similar tenets. That's what you, I'm saying. Yeah, it's still You focus same. on yourself. There is yeah. no... Satan is used as a I think a it's more of like a satire. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Satan is a symbol they picked up because it is the opposite of mm-hmm. the Christian right, church, right. which is yeah. fine. I feel like the, and I and I could be wrong because mm-hmm. I don't know necessarily about the church of Satan other than like a couple of TV shows where I think like the one guy literally just had like a t-shirt and Birkenstocks on when he. <laughs> I always think of Eddie Izzard's like church of Satan, cake or death. That's all I think oh, okay. of. Okay. <laughs> um, but I always felt like the satanic temple was a lot more like act, like they were like activism. They are total activists. And the. Church of Satan was a little bit more like low key, like, hey guys, like we're here. We had some like church trauma or like we're atheists. The Church of Satan, if you're going with Levian Satanism, is actually the ones that put on the big performances where they like had naked women on an altar and they put communion wafers in their lady bits. Okay, okay. These are women who voluntarily were like, yes, put them in there. Nobody's being abused, but like they did some weird shit. Okay, okay. Okay, so anyway, Satanic Temple is more like, I garden. Yeah. Okay. (laughs) So anyway, but as you can probably guess, Michelle was never gang raped by demons as a child. That's something that her psychologist husband fabricated and then dropped into her subconscious. But a seed was planted and it began to grow. Some other things of note were happening at this time as well. 
more and more American women had begun to enter the workforce. And because there were no parents at home, the children were all being put into daycares. A good daycare at the time was very hard to find because the regulations that exist now were not in place then. Neither were the nanny cams or mandatory report positions. So really, parents would just have to drop their babies off and let go and let God. Hope it went well. The Christian church was also still pretty prominent at this time in the United States, and they continued to push the idea of the nuclear family as an ideal, and this would include a mother staying home to care for her children and the father going to work, which left many working mothers feeling very conflicted and just, like, super guilty Mm -hmm. because they were going against this ideal that they were supposed to be a part of, and they were leaving their children with um, I don't know. Nancy down the street. Could be. Probably better off with Nancy down the street. Who knows? Add on to this list the fact that childhood sexual abuse, the real and true evil entity, like actual childhood sexual abuse, was finally and like just at this point being confronted in a mainstream way. So it was being given um, credence. Like this is a real thing that happens. Little kids get messed with in the worst way possible. And it wasn't being dealt with as like the, it's a family problem or, oh, watch Uncle Joe around the girls sort of way. I hate that one. Um, But it was like, oh, no, 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 this is going to fuck you up for life. And it's a terrible thing that people do. And this is the first time that is happening. So uh, add all of those things together and you get an entire generation of very scared, very guilty parents handing their kids over to people they barely know. And then these same parents read in the newspaper that there are lots of adults in this country that are very close to young children that have been raping them in secret and nobody knew. So they have no idea who to trust anymore. Mm -hmm. This is a terrifying time to be a parent. Because that concept of, like, someone close to your child could be, like, molesting them didn't exist until then. Oh, wow. Yeah. People just kind of swept it under the carpet. It didn't happen. It was a family matter. And now people are saying, oh, no, this happens, and it's people you trust that could be hurting your child, and you don't know. Right. So that could fuck anyone up. Exactly. And they're also framing it as, also, Satanists are everywhere. They could be your kid's teacher. They could be your best friend. They could be anyone. You don't know. They could be ruining your life. So it's like a parallel thing that exists. And I will loop in Dungeons and Dragons later. Don't you worry. So when these terrified parents read in the newspapers this reports of sexual abuse, suddenly they're like, well, who else do I look to? Who, who could be doing this to my child? I don't know. So after Michelle remembered all of those things, attention naturally shifted to, you guessed it, daycares. Very young children are remarkably suggestible and eager to please. So you can imagine how quickly these repressed memory allegations came rolling in, and they were bolder by the minute. Now, if you've ever seen a little kid tell a story and you're like, I don't think that's true, I think this is true, and then they lean into what you say and you give them like positive feedback, they go so hard in that direction immediately. Right. It doesn't take much work. So if you were like, mm, I don't know, you mean like 
you, you're trying to tell me your teacher didn't make you take all your clothes off and touch them inappropriately? And they're like, well, sometimes. And you're like, oh my God, sometimes you're so brave. That's awesome. Here's some cake. They'd be like, oh, like every day of my life, we were always naked and always touching each other because they just love that affirmation. They just love it. More cake, please. More cake, please. More validation. That's what they wanted. You just, you can't sing validation better than me. I'm sorry. That one was too high anyway. It was beautiful. It was so beautiful. Thank you so much. So these terrified parents, then thinking anyone could be out to get their children. They don't know. Other parents that are finding out that their kids are being abused didn't know. Right. So what do they not know? And now the obesity pandemic is happening because all these kids are eating cake. It's just a wild like cake and Satan. <laughs> I would love that party. I want to go to the Satan cake party. Anyway, in, in an effort to like cut it off at the pass, parents are taking their kids to psychiatrists. They're like, okay, like maybe ask my kid if anything shitty is happening to them. Let's like mm-hmm. just check in and make sure. But psychiatrists and psychologists at the time were all subscribing to this repressed memory nonsense. And so every kid was going home with a story about how their preschool teacher slaughtered a goat and then fed it to a group of naked children chained to a flaming fence post. Mm -hmm. I made that up, but it's like really close to what they really said. Right. It really is. It's it's almost exactly. (laughs) I know. So tons of daycares become under fire in this point in time. But the most famous of all of them was the McMartin Preschool. And that's something we call the McMartin Preschool Trial. You've heard me say it a bunch of times before. I'm going to give you a little information this time. So exciting. In 1983, a woman named Judy Johnson, who was the mother of one of these Manhattan Beach, California preschool young students, because that's where the McMartin Preschool was located. So she reports to the police that her young son had been sodomized by both her estranged husband and Also, his preschool teacher, a man named Ray Bucky. Now, Ray was the grandson of school founder Virginia McMartin and the son of the administrator Peggy McMartin Bucky. So he's grandfathered into the institution, creepy or not. Now, Judy believed that her son had been abused because he um, had painful bowel movements. Mm. Had a hard time taking a shit, so... Probably not dehydrated. The devil is probably doing awful things to him in the form of his preschool teacher. Logical leap. Okay. (laughs) So some sources state that at the time her son denied this suggestion and was like, that's not true. And then some of them say that he confirmed it. They're even, he's not talking. We can't tell you which one is true. End of story. In addition to this, Judy also made several more accusations, including that people at this daycare, the McMartin Preschool, had had sexual encounters with animals. She said that, quote, Peggy drilled children under the arms. And she means with the drill drill, not like a tickle finger or something. She means like a drill. And, quote, Ray flew in the air. Ray could fly. <sighs> Ray, that, does, that sounds like something little children would just say and randomly. She's not even saying her son said this. She's saying it for herself. But like drilled their armpits. Mm-hmm. What the fuck does that mean? I know. Ray Bucky was questioned, but he was not prosecuted because there's no evidence against him at all. That's the thing with this. And it's the same thing again in like the Salem witch hysteria 
in any kind of witch hunt that you're going to see, there's no evidence. There's none. It's just a lot of people are a lot of afraid and a lot of loud. And so innocent people go to jail. The police then (laughs) sent a form letter to approximately 200 parents of students at the McMartin School, stating that their children might have been abused. We don't know. And then they asked the parents to ask the kids. Shit might have gone down. Can you, like, ask your kids for us and, like, tell us, but, like, don't tell them? Okay, so, like, they're just already panicking. Yep. (laughs) The text of the letter read, and this is a direct quotation, this is the letter. Dear parent. Nope. This department is conducting a criminal investigation involving child molestation. You've already started wrong. Um, 288PC, Ray Bucky, an employee, and again, wrong, names right at the beginning. An employee of Virginia McMartin's preschool was arrested, not arrested, on September 7th, 1983 by this department. The following procedure is obviously an unpleasant one, but to protect the rights of your children, as well as the rights of the accused, this inquiry is necessary for a complete investigation. Records indicate that your child has been or is currently a student at the preschool. We are asking your assistance in this continuing investigation. You said that already. Please question your child just at home to see if he or she has been a witness to any crime or if he or she has been a victim. Our investigation indicates that possible criminal acts include, and we're suggesting what could have happened, Oh no! oral sex, fondling of genitals, buttock or chest area, and sodomy, possible committed under the pretense of taking the child's temperature. Also, photos may have been taken of children without their clothing. Any information from your child regarding having or ever observing Ray Bucky to leave a classroom alone with a child during any nap period, or if they have ever observed Ray Bucky tie up a child, is important. Please complete the enclosed information form and return it to this department in the enclosed stamped return envelope as soon as possible. We will contact you if circumstances dictate same. We ask you to please keep this information strictly confidential. (laughs) Nope. Because of the nature of the charges and the highly emotional effect it could have on our community. Please do not discuss this investigation with anyone outside your immediate family. Why wouldn't you? I'm telling everyone. Do not contact or discuss the investigation with Raymond Bucky any member of the accused defendant's family or employees connected with the McMartin Preschool. Caps locked. There is no evidence to indicate that the management of Virginia McMartin's preschool had any knowledge of this situation and no detrimental information concerning the operation of the school has been discovered during this investigation. Also, no other employee in the school is under investigation for any criminal act. That's all really frustrating. You couldn't have done it worse. Right. You did it so bad. The letter was called, quote, a model of what not to do. Yes. By John Myers, who is a professor at the University of California and a lawyer who represents child victims of abuse. He was like, this is insane. It's wild. I mean, when all of those what seem like facts mm-hmm. are written in there, it means that all of that is knowledge that you can grab 
already. Like if somebody's yeah. been arrested, mm-hmm. if if all of this, you is shouldn't happening, know any of that. You shouldn't even know the guy's name. No, I know. But then for them to be like, don't talk, don't tell anybody. I know that, it's wild. That, that stuff should have been in the paper. So the it fact that been. it's not in there, I it know. didn't happen. No, oh no, none of this happened. No, I know, none but I'm just it. saying that like mm-hmm. that's why like that. Yeah, that's like one of the reasons it's so wrong. Also, they didn't question they. They didn't tell them to ask their children about their bowel movements. No, they were I like, mean, ask that them is the number one. Specifically, <laughs> these things. We need to start there. How are your shits? Yeah. That's going to tell me what your life is like. To Sam. Incidentally, Judy Johnson, the girl whose son's shits were not going well, was diagnosed with and hospitalized for acute paranoid schizophrenia. And in 1996, she was found dead in her home from complications of chronic alcoholism. So she's treating schizophrenia, self-medicating with other substances. We've talked about how bad that is for you before and how much it can alter your reality. This goes back to our pal Mm -hmm. Richard Trenton Chase, who did the same kind Mm -hmm. of things and then did some pretty wild things. Oh, so that's really fat, sad. So she's not like, I don't know, she's... she. Didn't mean to be like a fear mongler. No, she didn't mean to be that. She honestly but probably I said mongler. By the way, <laughs> fear I mongler say that because that's going to come out in the recording, and I was like, that was wrong. I'm so excited <laughs> about fear monglers. Stop being such a mongler. Oh my god! No, she didn't mean it, and she probably actually like saw the things she purported to see because if you have like extreme chronic paranoid schizophrenia, you're going to have some sort of hallucinations. Yeah. It's possible that all these things were very, very real to her. And that's a scary reality to live in. Mm -hmm. She was having a really hard time. But that didn't stop the Satan train. No. No one talks about that ever at all. Ever. Amen. They're never like, oh, yeah, the woman that started this hallucinated a lot. So it's, it's probably not something we should break the bank on. They just kept going. But they didn't know. I mean, when did that happen? Like, how far into this? Let's see. Well, it says it's it was before the trial, the second, like the final trial. Oh, she's like dead at this point. Yeah, she's dead at that point, and they knew that she had the mental illness before that because she was diagnosed. But it's already the train has left the station. Mm -hmm. They're like, I don't give a shit what happens to you. I am already on this thing. So. Several hundred children were then interviewed by the Children's Institute International, which is a Los Angeles-based abuse therapy clinic run by Key McFarlane. The interview techniques they used during this investigation were super suggested. And they suggestive, sorry, and they would invite the children to play pretend or speculate about what might have happened. So they invited them to, like, make up a story. What would be, like, a thing that could have happened with Ray and you? Like, what if you guys were in a room together? What might have happened? Mm. If you think a preschool-age child is not going to be like, there was fire and demons, if that's what you, like, want to hear, you're crazy. That's 100% what they're going to say. By the spring of 1984, it was claimed that 360 children had been abused. Later... Research demonstrated that the methods of questioning regarding these children were extremely suggestive, as we mentioned before, and led to a bunch of false accusations. 
Others believe that the questioning itself may have also led to false memory syndrome amongst the children, which they then had to go into years of therapy to resolve on its own. They had all of these memories they could clearly see that never happened. Yeah, that's wild. It's awful, mm-hmm. and it's hard to reconcile. Michael P. Maloney, who is a clinical psychologist and professor of psychiatry, then reviewed the videotapes, because this is a while ago, of all the kids' interviews, because when they were interviewed, everything was videoed, and he concluded that many of the kids' statements in the interviews were generated by the examiner. Because often the examiner, and I've seen these videos, this is the 2020 special that led me into true crime, they're basically just asking them to confirm a narrative. They're like, and then you did this, right? And then he did this to you, didn't he? And the kids are like, yes. Mm -hmm. And then he took you into a back room and he took off all your clothes and he brought in an animal and he cut the animal's throat and then the animal screamed and you were scared. Weren't you scared? Yes. It's like that. What? Yeah. So gross. Yep. It was alleged that in addition to having been sexually abused, these students also saw witches fly, traveled in a hot air balloon, and were taken through underground tunnels. One child even identified actor Chuck Norris as one of the abusers. Mm-hmm. They just showed him a bunch of pictures, and he was like, yeah, that's one of them. Oh, my God. And we all know this is crazy because Chuck Norris would bare-knuckle box the devil himself and win. So, absolutely. Clearly not Chuck Norris. The case against the McMartin preschool was ultimately closed after a long and absurd trial with all the charges against Ray Bucky being dismissed. But at this point in time, he had been jailed for five years without ever being convicted of a single crime. That is so wild to me. Mm -hmm. Eventually, apologies did begin to trickle in. There's only been a couple, though. Most of them said nothing. Kyle Zirpolo, one of the former, former McMartin students who made allegations to the police, said to the Los Angeles Times, quote, I lied. It was an ordeal. I remember thinking to myself, I'm not going to get out of here unless I tell them what they want to hear. But that was one of the preschoolers? Mm-hmm. And, how, said, and that was five years later, he said it? Or yeah, like it was later like afterwards. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So again, like they're producing these narratives and this five-year-old is like, I know that didn't happen, but I also yeah. know I'm supposed to say, yes, it did. So right. I'm just going to say it. Yeah. After the McMartin preschool trial opened the floodgates, many, many, many other daycares went under fire as well. Because we're all looking to daycares, as I explained before. While this all may seem positively operatic to many of us, at the time, it was presented as very, very real. And the major driving force behind all of this information was police and social workers. Yeah. According to the New York Times, and this is a big quote, quote, FBI agents, police officers, lawyers, and social workers gathered what they could and shared their findings at conferences and seminars. They handed out satanic calendars, traded pamphlets about symbols like the, quote, cross of Nero and the horned hand, and copied lists of supposed occult organizations, which included a collective of feminist astrologers in Minnesota. It's a lot of people that are not doing anything bad besides sitting in their backyard. (laughs) They're like, we have flower crowns and telescopes. Leave them alone. I love them. 
quote, a lot of this stuff was being disseminated by law enforcement without efforts to corroborate it. One cop would come up and say, what a load of crap. But then another one would say, I've got to learn more. Mm-hmm. Each authority, police, prosecutors, psychologists, the media put pressure on the other to act. So everyone's doing a little bit, but saying the other one is not doing enough. Right. And uh, uh, Anne Merlin, the author of a book on the history of conspiracy theories, said, quote, it was a very fervid environment, very credible-seeming people were saying, quote, occult ritual abuse is all around you. We've seen it, and the signs are visible if you know how to look for it. Mm. And that is a key phrase. If you know how to look for it, because it puts the onus on you, and you have failed because you haven't seen it. So then you are encouraged to see it as much as possible. Right. Learn more about it. See it. Which mm-hmm. works for other things. That's like the hard... Send, yeah. Send your kid to the psychologist immediately who then guides mm-hmm. them into this narrative that they've been right. abused by devils or whatever. Eventually, the pamphlets that law enforcement is kind of handing out found their way into the hands of news outlets and major networks who then aired their own enormous exposés on the underground ring of satanic abuse in the United States. 2020 famously produced the special that made me obsess over true crime to this very day. Go back and watch it. When they say oral sex, remember that I was a little enough kid to think that was people talking about dirty things. (laughs) True story. And NBC commissioned its own special hosted by Geraldo Rivera, who described some pretty gruesome crimes just like because Geraldo had done the like Willowbrook testimony. Like he right. went to that um, mental hospital, if you can even call it that, and did that huge expose yeah, before that was this. Rough. Super rough. Oh my God. So I go to physical therapy with a woman who knows a survivor from Willowbrook, like a living person. Wild. I know. She's like, oh, my friend is a uh, home health aide and she lives because like she's the kind that like will live with you with a woman that spent her formative years in Willowbrook. And then when Geraldo came in and they, like, everybody was released and they, like, kind of were trying to get everyone out of there, she had nowhere to go. And she ended up with this woman I met in physical therapy's friend. I was like, wow, what? She was like, have you ever heard of this? I was like, have I ever heard (laughs) of it? Excuse me. You must not realize who I am. I'm a Holly now. Listen, you I know. talk to Sylvia all the time. My dog is her profile picture on Facebook. She should know. <laughs> he is. It's true. So anyway, Geraldo, uh, in addition to describing these gruesome cries, kind of like the Michelle remembers stuff, the like, oh, they were, it was super graphic. They were forced to like, you know, eat shit and cower in a corner. He also aired a child testimony of abuse, so people that have been lead, led to remember things, and an interview with Ozzy Osbourne. Great. Who was probably like, mm, I eat some bats. <sighs> Fuck off. And almost 20 million homes in the United States tuned into this. So yeah. everybody knew. I saw it. I was a little kid, and I for sure saw it. I remember it vividly. Mm-hmm. So, with the devil all around us and kids serving as his primary target, it was only a matter of time before we moved on from Satan hiding in schools to other things children engaged in, like, oh, I don't know, say, games? Mm -hmm. 
And what better game to hide a sex and murder and sexy murder cult in than one that featured magic, imaginative storytelling, monsters, and predominantly children who, shall we say, walked outside the societal norm of the time. I am not commenting on people who play D&D whatsoever. You are clearly my people in a lot of ways. Mm. I... I love the, like, Facebook meme that people are like, oh, you all love Eddie Munson now, but if you were in high school, you would have turned him down. No the fuck I wouldn't. Go look at my dating history. We'd be married now. He probably would have been my best friend. I would have had a crush on him, but I still would have dated him. would have 100% been married. Anyway, so now it is time for the outside witch hunt folks to turn their attention to Dungeons and Dragons, full of things they could call satanic or whatever now before we get to how we D was zeroed in on and just to let you know ahead of time i'm not going into the church's problems with dungeons and dragons it is different we are staying only in the realm of legal and parents and stuff the church have their own problems it is very similar to the christian church's problems with harry potter mm-hmm. you're just not allowed to be magic the end right But I think before we go into any more, we should learn a little bit about the game itself. Leslie, you're like an avid dungeon dweller, right? Oh, absolutely. That's what they call themselves, isn't it? (laughs) Dungeon dwellers? That's right. I don't know. I've never actually It's not. It's the wrongest thing I've ever said. Yeah. (laughs) I'm a dungeon dweller. (laughs) I know. I mean, like, I haven't played either, but, like, looking at it now, I'm like, I'd probably be good at it. It's all storytelling. Yeah. I, I think I played once or twice. My brother played a lot of these games growing up, and I couldn't wait till I was old enough to play with him. And then he went to college, and we never did this. Adam, fix it. Oh, my yeah. God. Get it together. Yeah. But anyway, can I you— did, I did think they were dorky, though, so that was my bad. Everybody did. But everybody did at the time. <laughs> that was like, oh, that's why I phrased it very delicately. Kids who are, like, mm-hmm. outside the societal norm, but they were like— Kids, you might say now are dorky, but I look back on that and I'm like, well, I was dorky and also like I love storytelling. Yeah. So I only was not involved in it because I was given some sort of message that I would be not cool if I was. Right. Well, so for me, my brother who played it with uh, like a couple of our friends on the street. <laughs> he went out on the street, played the D&D. Street. Yeah. Um, and they play, I don't, they might've played like Magic the Gathering or some of the other ones. There's a couple other. Different one, yeah. Yeah. But anyway, they would play them. And I remember wanting to call them dorks for playing it because they wouldn't let me play it with them. But I was just jealous and I couldn't wait until I was old enough and cool enough to play with them. And then we never did. Well, I think that's a lot of the thesis statement of this. The people who don't like it and turn on it are like maybe a little bit jealous because this is like a clique of people having a great time and not hurting anyone. And you so legit, we, we have to ruin you it. You legit need an imagination. You do need an all, imagination. These are all very fun intellectuals. Imaginative people. Yeah, yeah, people who can write a story. And I have the ultimate respect for people who can write stories. Yeah. I And just people that like to have fun. That's like what through it every are. week. Yeah, also like, please have fun. We're not yeah. here forever. You should just have fun. Yeah. All right. Well, let me tell you about it. Tell me about D&D, please. Okay, so... I realized I wrote the information about Dungeons & Dragons and forgot to write, like, who created it. So I'm going to just read this from Britannica. Perfect. Here yeah, give us a little, like, like encyclopedia <laughs> roundup. I know we did yeah. this when we covered elves, but it's mm-hmm. important to revisit for a minute. So Dungeons & Dragons, or D&D, is a fantasy role-playing game 
RPG created by American game designers Ernest Gary Gygax and David Arneson. I love Gary Gygax's Mm -hmm. name. That's bananas. Yeah. They created it in 1974 and published that year by Gygax's company, Tactical Studies Rules, TSR. Okay. So um, what I did learn, but I did not learn what that abbreviation was. So thank you. Yeah. So what I learned is that when they tried to form this game, so uh, Gygax was also the creator with, I think I, this is me just trying to remember Mm -hmm. from reading on the nerdist.com. I think it was John Parsons or some, some other person. Yeah. Um, Go back to our episode on elves because you get into it. And if you need information on Gary Gygax, you can go back to that. So they created um, another game called Chainmail, and it was like a medieval yeah, kind of role-playing game. Mm-hmm. And um, so that's that's where Gygax gets like his qualifications from. Right. Um, and Arn- Arneson, who I think he might have been like uh, some sort of like gay mm. marketer or something. I don't know. Anyway, they were trying to market this game to other companies. Nobody would buy it. So Gygax was like, I'll just create a... A company that can then publish this and we can sell it to places. Good for so you, So that's dude. what the TSR is. It okay. was his just self-made so that he could publish it and sell it to people. And then um, the game was acquired in 1997, so um, more than 20 years later, by mm-hmm. Wizards of the Coast, a subsidiary of, um, touch on that later, of Hasbro, Inc. Oh, um, I didn't know that. Yeah, so they and uh, Wizards of the Coast is the ones who made Magic the Gathering. What so, a great title. Yes. And we are so, all the wizards of the coast. Yes. Which coast? Any coast. It's not our coast, is it? The other one. It's probably the LA I coast. Know. But yeah, and so that happened because there was a whole like Dungeons and Dragons like took over and then there was like a falling out and they fired, I think they fired Gygax from the company. No, Gary Gygax. It was, kind of, it was like a, they had like a Steve Jobs situation no, okay. where like it wasn't doing well and they okay. got rid of the one guy. Fair and enough. then um, the the wizards of the coast came in, took it rebuilt Wizards it of the coast. and they like gave money to the creators oh, and were like we're sorry anyway okay they sound so like this they did a good job so i'm okay with them yeah they they came in and fixed all the problems perfect yeah all right so dungeons and dragons is a tabletop role-playing game or rpg a group of players assume the roles of fictional characters who embark upon imaginary ventures exploring dungeons fighting monsters and discovering treasure within a fantasy setting so they do well in dungeons sometimes they sure do okay not too far off to play all you need is a group of friends a pencil a piece of paper some dice a few rule books and your imagination oh boy i have all those things not the dice but you know what other stuff the key is to remember this is a game of structured make-believe unlike other games that may have set times or ways to win D has no preset win condition like any good book, the best part isn't about the ending. It's about the exploration and journey of the fictional characters. Okay, cool. I'm here for it. So here are the basics of playing. Mm-hmm. Each game is made of two parts, the players and the dungeon master. And Holly, did you watch the show Community? Yeah. So you can, do you remember the Dungeon and Dragon episode? Yeah. Okay, so just like picture that. Okay, that's Abed, Abed is the dungeon master right. and the rest of the characters are there. And so this is what they're doing. Remember, he comes in and he has like character sheets and everything like yeah. that. And they're talking about their characters. This is Eddie Munson. Yep. And and in Stranger Things with Eddie Munson. But we don't really get to see them build their characters. We get to see no, them do that on No, we just see community. him be like awesome and creative. 
I'm going to stop there. Okay. Continue. So the players each create a fictional character that will represent them in the world. You would first choose your character's race, such as human, elf, gnome, or typhling. And there's more. What is that last one? Typhling? So typhlings are actually humans who their ancestors had made deals with the devils. Oh, wow. Yeah. So they have some sort of like like devil or okay. Satan like curse like within them. They're like Beetlejuice. Yeah. It's like part demon. Mm-hmm. Got it. Each playable race has unique features and attributes that help define them. Next, you would choose your character's class, such as a fighter, wizard, or rogue. Class is similar to an occupation or profession is and is in a fundamental part of the identity and nature of your character. Classes define your character's capabilities, strengths, and weaknesses. So depending on your class, you might be a character that can cast spells or wield weapons or like maybe you're really good at stealing things or unlocking doors. You guys, I don't like know that. how to like make these decisions. Somebody tell me what I am. Well, I no, really want to know. You kind of like, again, you pick your race. I want someone else to tell me what they think I am. And then you I'm pick your occupation. <laughs> and then you find out what your skill is. All right, someone pick for me because I I desperately want to know what I like, what energy I give off. <laughs> we should find a BuzzFeed quiz for our okay. like um, host mortem. That'll be fun. Okay. Stay on. Focus. Sorry, I can't always. <laughs> so you can gain skill levels throughout the story. Ideally, players will have a variety of abilities offered by the classes, allowing for a well-rounded party. Okay, and that's ideal. A little and bit like, of everything, again, right? and okay. yeah, and again in Stranger Things or Community, they all they had, had everything. They were all very different, but together they were like a full team. Or if like Lord subscribe, of the Rings, they're a full team. They were all. Isn't there. Lord of the Rings like a big influence? On Dungeons and Dragons, there's like a whole segment I read about that. How like yeah, he sure. lied about like, it. He was like, Tolkien. "No," and then years later, he was like, "Yeah." Well, of course, a lot of Tolkien stuff. I would assume. That's yeah, weird well, to people, lie about. Uh, people did, but then he was like, "No, I made it up myself." And he was like, "I don't, Dude. I don't know anything about that." I would have just assumed it was all. Yeah, because it seems very much the same. Yeah. Uh, once you have your race and class, you will give your character a name and create a backstory, which can be as simple or complex as each player wants. So this is the part where I realized, complex. yeah, you would be so complex. You would have like a novel, like a whole backstory written by like, your character. Sorry, guys, there's 45 pages yeah. you have to read. And then I would just be like, I just like my family was hungry, so I had to start stealing food. I'm like, an elf. I like my hat. Yeah. This is the woods. The end. Yeah, mine would have been so. I would have tried to do what you do and got real tired. It and is just exhausting. Made it real simple. Everything I do is exhausting. Yeah. So on the back end, you would fill out all this information on a character sheet. So there's like pieces of paper. Those I looked up. I read a bunch of character okay. sheets. So not everyone playing chooses a character. This there is one person who has been deemed dungeon master. <gasps> Dungeon Master. The DM controls the worlds and characters within the game and is responsible for preparing each game session. They are essentially the author, director, and referee, while the other players are more like actors. I probably need the position where I'm in charge. Yeah, you might. It's a lot more work, though. It's a lot more work. I mean, I do. It's like a full time job. I do lots of work, but I know. You would want to be an actor, I think. Probably. I can't like Dungeon Master life right now. The DM creates the details and challenges of given adventures while also maintaining a natural progression of the overall story. They facilitate the game by narrating the story and controlling all the monsters and characters that the players interact with. I like that part. 
and what effects the character's actions may have. They also, so some people can come in, like there there could be a story. So the dungeon master can be like, I have this, you know, story, this adventure that we want to do. Right. So come in with your characters. And like, so people might be like, okay, I can write my own characters. But they might come in and say like, oh, here's all of your characters. I'll like start you off this way. So I wrote your characters. So sometimes they do that. Depends on how much control you want, I suppose. Well, and it's just who you're playing with. You might have beginners. You might have like, yeah. here's, I'll, I'll write you up a really story really good at that you. or people who don't like it. Okay. Yeah. That's fair. Mm-hmm. So sometimes it might seem like the dungeon master is working against the characters, but that is not the case. Their goal is to tell a collaborative story, keep the pace of the game, and allow characters to work together or against each other to reach their goals, all the while making sure everyone, including themselves, are following the rules. And though you may want to blame the dungeon master for your character's misfortune or another player's success, it's not the DM's fault. It's all about the roll of the dice. Gracious. Special dice, though. Speaking of dice. Yes, tell us. I originally thought dice were required during every character's turn. However, this is not true. Most actions a character may want to take can be resolved during a role play. Mm -hmm. Want to ask a character a question? Go ahead. Want to flirt with the barkeep? Go ahead. All right. (laughs) Sounds great. Other actions require the roll of the dice to determine the character's success. Feats of athleticism, uh, diplomacy, or magical knowledge may require a skill check. And when you want to attack an enemy, you will will need a d20 or a 20-sided dice for an attack roll. You would then add the number that you roll to the number on your skill sheet and then put that number against your enemy's skill number to see if your attack was successful or not. Oh boy, that sounds like math that I don't want to (laughs) do. Very simple. This is why you didn't apply. Yeah, that is 100% why I didn't play. But it's very simple. There are other dice like a D4, D6, D8, D10, and a D12 that are used to calculate damage. So these are the amount of sides on this dice? Mm -hmm. Okay. Now, there are a couple of main guides and rulebooks to use for D&D, but sometimes situations come up and there isn't a clear rule to follow, but that's what the dungeon master is for. They can make the ultimate decision or add an exception or make a new rule. Overall, the game is really fun and wholesome, and for those who have an imagination and enjoy sitting around a table, eating snacks with friends, telling a great story, while possibly becoming the hero who saves the village from a fire-breathing dragon— there's nothing better to do than play D&D on a Saturday night or any night, really. I feel, like a, a, I feel like I would like that part of it. Yeah. I like stories. I love snacks. It's so, so I will say, I, I said I didn't play it once. My son actually tried to okay. do a, a, a session. I yeah. don't I forget what you call them. A campaign. A campaign. Thank you. And he did create characters for us. Hmm. And then I think I like, I remember being like, wait, I don't want, I remember like editing my character. So (laughs) So I was like, no, no, no. I need to like flesh this out a bit. (laughs) So one of my ex-boyfriends, you know, the like, you're too cool to like guys like that. No, I'm not. One of his very good friends was like super, and this is like a a beautiful little woman was into Mm D&D. And she was a beautiful artist. So she would draw these like stunning interpretations of all of her characters. She just had all of this like gorgeous artwork. That's not everybody, but she would roll up to like a, ga- a campaign or whatever and be like, here's what I look like. Here's all my stuff. And I was like, you're ready. Yeah. <laughs> and you look super hot in all of these illustrations. So you've 
done your homework. Right. Well done, my friend. Right. I know. It is really easy. Once you start it, it seems daunting. It's big. 100% really big, right? But it starts. So the dungeon master does all the legwork. He creates maps. They don't have time for that shit. Fair enough. They create the story. And they have have ideas of where they want to go with it. Okay. And they have monsters that they throw into the stories and obstacles and weather and all this other stuff. I feel like that's how the books happen because there are books. Yeah. But it's still has to do with the characters and what dice they like what they roll mm-hmm. and what journey they go on and sometimes the characters split off instead of working together and so it it does i mean the dungeon master is like i said it, it, he's like an author he's like creating he's like this writing story, this and he's story. doing it as it's going so he might have an end goal that they're all trying to get towards, mm-hmm. like a journey that they're on. Don't all campaigns have like something? You don't necessarily always accomplish it, but you're trying to do this one thing. You are. And and these games could take, they could take years to do. Sheepers. Which it, but it's like fun for these people. Well, and sure. So you can be obviously doing multiple campaigns at a time. But sure, sure, sure. Yeah, it's a whole, it's a whole thing. And it's just fun and imaginative and that's it. I like it. I didn't when I was younger, but I was stupid then. So that's fine. All right. Now, before I get to the actual cases in question, you will know that there are a couple of D&D monsters, most likely if you watch Stranger Things. And if you don't, like, what is your life? Anyway, there are a few monsters that are real real D&D characters that they feature very prominently on the show. And they are the Mind Flayer and the Demigorgon. So if you watch the show, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Starfish head, tentacle face. That's what they are. Now, in my opinion, this is not a mistake or a coincidence. In the Dungeons & Dragons fantasy role-playing game, um, I think you pronounce this illithids, which are commonly known as Mind Flayers, are monstrous humanoid aberrations with psionic powers. In typical D&D campaign setting, they live in moist, which I hate that word, caverns and cities of the enormous Underdark, which I believe is like kind of the upside down inspiration. Mm-hmm. Illithids believe themselves to be the dominant species of the multiverse and use other intelligent creatures as thralls, slaves, and chattel. Illithids have a humanoid body with an octopus-like head, like I said, tentacle head. They have four tentacles around a lamprey-like mouth. Now, lampreys lampreys are that, like, circle of teeth situation. Mm -hmm. Terrible. And they require the brains of a sentient creature as part of their diet. Gross. An illithid who snares a living creature in all four of its tentacles can extract and devour its prey's living brain. Mm. Yeah. Their eyes are pale white and they can see perfectly well in both darkness and light. Their sense of hearing is slightly poorer than humans, but they have difficulty distinguishing between several sounds mixed together. Yet they are good at discerning uh, from what direction sounds came. Their skin is purplish blue to gray green and covered in mucus, which is why I was like, maybe you're one of them. And it's very sensitive to sunlight. So, like, photosensitive mm. little guys. Wait, but I thought you said that they, like, light or darkness in it bother them. 
They like are cave dwellers. They like to be in the dark. Okay. They hate sunlight, though it doesn't hurt them. They just don't like it. Okay. I understand that. Which I like that they're like, it doesn't, it's not like going to do damage, but like, I just hate it. (laughs) So one of their most feared powers is the dreaded mind blast, where the illithid emits a cone-shaped psionic shockwave with its mind. Like, good for you. I don't fully understand that, but I think it's killing it. In order to incapacitate any creature for a short amount of time, illithids also have other psionic powers. They're generally telepathic in nature, although their exact effects have varied over different editions of the game. Other powers include a defensive psionic shield and powers of psionic domination for controlling the minds of others. And I'm going to get to why this shit is important, I promise. And now it's going to get gross. Illithids are hermaphroditic creatures, that's not why it's gross, who each spawn a mass of larvae, that's why it's gross, two or three times in their life. The larvae resemble to develop in the pool of the elder brain. So these characters are all connected to like a sentient brain Mm. that exists in a pool of goo somewhere. It's beautiful. Is it? The last ones that survive after 10 years are inserted into the brain of a sapient creature. Hosts are determined in a very specific manner. Hosts generally are humanoid creatures that are between 5 foot 4 and 6 foot 2. The most desirable of races for hosts are humans, Darrow, elves, Githzeri, Githyanki, Grimlocks, Gnolls, goblinoids, and orcs. I knew I was going to have trouble. So that's like almost all of them. That's a lot. Upon (laughs) being implanted through any cranial orifice, the larva then grows and consumes the host's brain, absorbing the host's physical form entirely and becoming sapient itself. A physically mature but mentally young illithid. This process is called, why do we have a process? Ceramorphosis. When an illithid undergoes ceramorphosis, which there's like six paragraphs about that I just cut, it can occasionally take on some elements of the absorbed host's creature's former mind, such as mannerisms. This typically manifests as a minor personality feature, such as a nervous habit or reaction, like nail biting or tapping your foot. Although the process that determines the type and number of traits so inherited appears to be stochastic? I don't know. Some adult illithids have been known to hum a tune they knew in life. Okay. I hate that. Usually when a mind flayer inherits a trait like this, it keeps it a close guarded secret because where its peers peers to learn of it, the illithid in question would most likely be killed. This is due to a legend of being called the adversary. In Complete Psionic, it is revealed that illithids have a step between larva and their next phase, which is called a larval flare. So there's lots of different stuff that they can be. So basically, I told you all this heavy stuff because these are monsters who take the shape of a familiar entity to hurt people close to them, Mm -hmm. which sounds an awful lot like the demons we put in the place of child abusers. Right. 
This is very similar and it makes the situation more palatable to say that your cousin or family friend is possessed by something and that's why they're hurting you other than they're just deciding to do it themselves. Right. Well, I mean, and I know we're not getting into the church stuff, but that's right. like what they've been doing with the church for years. Very similar. Like, mm-hmm. They're just possessed by the by the devil. Right. They have a demon in them that's it's causing the them, that's causing Uncle Joe to do this. Right, right, right. Mm-hmm. The second monster of prominence, um, and this is much shorter, I promise you, is the Demogorgon. The Demogorgon, starfish face, is a rampaging monster said to be, quote, the embodiment of chaos, madness, and destruction. Now, unsurprisingly, he also proves himself to be one of the most dangerous demon lords. I wish I was a demon lord. Invading the Underdark and a herald of all-out destruction. He is a symbol of chaos, hysteria, and mindless, just like leveling, just destruction. Need we say more? The concept of Dungeons and Dragons as satanic was linked to the concept of the satanic ritual abuse. So the reason they consider it to be satanic at all is because of all of the stuff we just mentioned linking into this now. So now we're all coming together. Um, and, And this is because they both presumed the existence of large organized satanic cults and societies and sources, sources such as Dungeons and Dragons track from Czech publications portray D&D as a recruitment tool for these organizations. So they're like, oh, these kids get people to come into their parties or their campaign, and then we recruit them into the Church of Satan. We do it through a game. And the suspicion all began with a boy named James Dallas Engelbert. So the first case is this kid, and he was born October 29th, 1962, died August 16th, 1980. And he was a student at Michigan State University who disappeared from his dormitory room on August 15th, 1979. The disappearance was widely reported in the press and his participation in the fantasy role-playing game Dungeons and Dragons was seized upon press and investigators alike as being potentially related to his disappearance, propelling the previous obscure game. So basically, people like wanted to blame D&D for everything. They wanted to be like, oh, well, he died because he liked playing Dungeons and Dragons. So ridiculous. Isn't it? James Egbert was born in Dayton, Ohio and grew up in Huber Heights, a Dayton suburb, attending Wayne High School. He was a child prodigy, BT dubs. And he went to Michigan State University at the tender age of 16, where he majored in computer science. That's not an easy feat, especially at that age. Personal problems cited in the reports of his suicide attempt and his disappearance include depression, loneliness, parental pressure, drug addiction, and according to Detective William Deere, difficulty in coming to terms with his homosexuality. So he has a lot going on. Mm -hmm. On August 15, 1979, after writing a suicide note, Egbert left his dormitory room at Case Hall and entered the university's steam tunnels. He consumed some methaqualone, some sort of upper, I think, intending to commit suicide, although he lived. After waking up the next day, he went into hiding at a friend's house. Gen Con uh, 12, a convention dedicated to tabletop role-playing, began that day, and some attendees reported that they may have seen him at the con. Great. Good job. 
A police uh, search for Egbert began. The story was followed widely in the news media after Michael Stewart, a journalist for the university's newspaper, published details. Uh, so his parents hired a PI, which is a man named William Deere, to try and find him. Um, but William Deere didn't know too much about like D&D or fantasy role-playing games. So he thought that maybe Egbert's disappearance was related to his involvement with D&D. He's like, oh, well, you played D&D, so they, those people probably came and took you. A possibility further promoted in subsequent news media. Students were reported to play live action sessions of the game in the steam tunnels below the school. And it was speculated that Egbert was injured or otherwise disappeared during such a session. How scary is that? Yeah. Jesus. The search for Egbert continued unsuccessfully for several weeks, during which Egbert moved to two other houses in East Lansing before finally leaving the city via bus for New Orleans. Egbert made a second suicide attempt in New Orleans by consuming a cyanide compound, which is not an easy way to go. So that sounds awful. But it also failed. He then moved to Morgan City, Louisiana, and was employed as a roustabout, which is someone that works for a carnival but does all the grunt work. So you probably carry boxes with toys in it and, you know, like lemonade syrup and all that other stuff. You just do pain in the ass stuff. Carrying boxes with toys, the hard, hard work. (laughs) I mean, maybe they were there. I don't know. know. (laughs) After four days on the job at whatever carnival he was on, James Egbert called uh, the private investigator and told him where he was. He then traveled to Louisiana. Some people say Texas, but it was Louisiana, and recovered James. Upon their meeting, he asked the investigator not to tell anybody. So he's like, please don't tell them where I went. This is kind of embarrassing. I just wanted to, like, disappear into the ether and be cool forever. And so the investigator agrees. He's like, all right, dude, I'm not going to tell anybody. I'm going to give you to your uncle. And everyone's like, okay, cool. Just give me to his custody. We're all going to be done. But then Egbert died of a self-inflicted gunshot wound on August 16th, 1980. And in 1984, the investigator revealed the story in a book called The Dungeon Master. Oh. Yeah. The idea of Dungeons and Dragons players actually playing like real life games where they're running around and stuff in dangerous locations like steam tunnels and then losing touch with reality, like just sinking into the tunnels forever, became something that was like ingrained into like the culture of Dungeons and Dragons and inspired a bunch of books and movies like the book based on James called Mazes and Monsters. Mm. That's like a very early Tom Hanks movie. So people had this idea that you would like descend into the bowels of the earth and forget reality. Right, and that's really not what no, most of the people were doing. Certainly not. Most of the people were just around a coffee table. Yep, absolutely, 100%. <laughs> they were all at their table just like rolling yeah. dice and hanging out. And probably even where that kid was like in that dwelling. Yeah. They were probably just sitting down playing a game. Yeah, or he was just hiding in relative comfort and it was not a big deal. Right. The perceived link between James Egbert's disappearance and D&D was kind of controversial. And it was linked to the game in the early 80s. But the publicity surrounding the novel and the movie Mazes and Monsters really heightened the public's fear of D&D. People like saw this happen and they were like, oh, our kids could disappear and never come back. Right. So it kind of ignited this like we're all a little bit scared of it. It could be a scary thing that our kids are doing. It's not, but they thought it could be. 
And the movies and books were like very successful. Right. And so this only kind of hyped up the hysteria. And soon D&D and their devil connection reached a woman named Patricia Pulling, who reminds me of like a one-woman million-mom march. So Patricia Pulling was someone who they called an anti-occult campaigner, which already sounds like not someone who's fun to hang out with. Um, And she's from Richmond, Virginia. And she founded something called Bothered About Dungeons and Dragons. Oh, my God. Which is abbreviated as B-A-D-D or bad. Oh, boy. I know. This is an... You couldn't do better than bothered? Bothered about? Do better than that. Oh, God. And bad is an advocacy group that is dedicated to the regulation of role-playing games. So this whole advocacy group is like, I'm going to just make sure you're not playing too much because then you're going to go into a tunnel and die. Right. No, that makes I mean, it sounds like something that would right. Of would happen. It doesn't make sense, but like I see how it happened. Yeah, I get that. Yeah. Well, because it reminds me of like the because uh, wasn't it a mom's group that does the ratings on movies, too? Oh, yeah. Yeah. That did start as that. That's so funny. So Patricia Pulling, this woman who sounds like a million mom march to me, formed the group BAD, B-A-D-D after her son Irving committed suicide by shooting himself in the chest, which is rough. We will admit that. He did this on June 9th, 1982. And her son Irving was active in role-playing games or something he loved to do. And his mother believed that his suicide was directly related to Dungeons and Dragons. The grieving mother filed a wrongful death lawsuit against her son's high school principal, a man named Robert Bracey, holding him as responsible for what she claimed was a Dungeons and Dragons curse placed upon her son's character shortly before his death. So she sued a real human for putting a curse on her son. Mm. Like sued him in a court of law. Dungeons and... I can't believe that even made it. I know. It's insane. So, Patricia Pulling appeared on an episode of 60 Minutes, which also featured Dungeons and Dragons creator, one of them at least, Gary Gygax. And this episode aired in 1985. So, in response to Patricia Pulling's allegations, Gary Gygax fired back, quote, this is make-believe. No one is murdered. There is no violence there. To use an analogy with another game, who is bankrupted by a game of Monopoly? Nobody is. The money isn't real. There is no link, except perhaps in the mind of those people who are looking desperately for any other cause than their own failures as a parent. Yeah. So his point was like, you're desperately seeking something that says you didn't do the wrong thing. Mm -hmm. I know. I'm sure that that game was the only solace that kid had. For sure. Absolutely. It just maybe wasn't enough. Maybe not. And that's okay. So then Patricia encouraged, um, she said that D&D, like she doubled down. So she had done these like preliminary interviews and stuff, but now she's like really going at it. And she's like, I think Dungeons and Dragons encourages devil worship and suicide. It encourages members of its church to commit suicide. B-A-D-D described D&D as a, quote, fantasy role-playing game which uses demonology 
witchcraft, voodoo, murder, rape, blasphemy, suicide, assassination, insanity, sex perversion, which like do better than that, homosexuality, prostitution, satanic type rituals, gambling, barbarism, cannibalism, sadism, desecration, demon summoning, necromantics, divination, and other teachings. So everything good. (laughs) I mean, like all the fun is in there. BADD achieved some success in airing its views in the press, but through conservative Christian media properties as well as a mainstream outlet. So this is really funny. This is a time when like mainstream Christian media mm-hmm. and mainstream like 24-hour news cycle media, CNN type stuff, agree. Right. Does not happen ever. This is one of the only times where they were like on board for the same thing. So the organization, bad BADD, distributed its materials in Australia through conservative advocacy groups. Like I said, they're probably pretty conservative. And these are affiliated with the Reverend Fred Nile, such as the Australian Federation for Decency. Oh, nice. I'm in a federation for decency. Okay. In addition, uh, Patricia Pulling obtained a private investigator's license and became a consultant to a law firm and was an expert witness in several gaming-related lawsuits, all of which lost in court. She became a director of the National Coalition for TV Violence in 1984. So she just parlayed what she was doing into, like, TV being too violent or video games. Right. Makes sense. Yeah, she was just rolling with the times. I mean, she's got to stay relevant. She sure does. Patricia Pulling co-authored a book called The Devil's Web, Who is stalking your children for Satan? I don't know how Will got through it. Uh, It was published in 1989. The book makes no distinction between H.P. Lovecraft's fictional Necronomicon and the Simon Necronomicon. I don't know what that is. A realization of the book. Okay, so like the second one is like they made it real. They took the, the mythology and the Necronomicon and they made it like a real story. (laughs) <laughs> Bless whoever did that. They worked very hard. Right. Um, so one portion of the book urges police officers to open interrogations of suspected teenage occultists with the question, have you read the Necronomicon? Ooh. Are you familiar with it? Well, are you? <laughs> I'm not really. I don't, I don't want to say. I feel like you are. I don't want to say. Okay, I, well, I won't call you out. We have one more case for you guys before we sew up the end of this. And this is the most famous one probably. And it is the murder of a man named Leif von Stein or Steen, depending on how you like to pronounce things. And this is the murder that incurred and murder. It happened in 1988 in Washington, North Carolina. And it brought Dungeons and Dragons um, some pretty nasty press because members of a D&D gaming group were involved um, so that it was all linked in together. Now, a man named Chris Pritchard, who was a student at North Carolina State University, allegedly masterminded the murder of his father, Leith von Steen or Stein, however you'd like to pronounce it, for his $2 million fortune. Oh my God, stop with your health insurance and your life insurance. Don't tell people those things. They're gonna kill you. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So Leith and his... Well, not now. Not, that's like pocket change at this point. <laughs> I know. But like imagine back then. <laughs> Leith Bonstein and his wife, Fonny, were both bludgeoned and stabbed by a masked assailant in their bedroom. 
leaving the husband fatally wounded and the wife gravely injured. Chris Pritchard had a history of mutual antagonism, so that means they just kind of like annoyed each other, with his stepfather, and investigators learned over the course of a year that Pritchard had become involved with also drugs and alcohol while attending college. Everybody does that. But the authorities focused on his role-playing group after a game map depicting the Von Steen house turned up as physical evidence. So he had, like, mapped out his own home. Right. And they were like, oh, well, you clearly did something. Pritchard's friends Neil Henderson and James Upchurch were implicated in a plot to help Pritchard kill his stepfather, but all three young men went to state prison in 1990. Henderson and Pritchard have since been paroled. Upchurch's death sentence was commuted to life in 1992. He is serving his term. True crime authors Joe McGinnis and Jerry Bledsoe played up that role-playing angle. Much attention was given to Upchurch's influence and power as a dungeon master. And Bledsoe's book, Blood Games, was made into a TV movie because I mentioned before, everything became a movie in these D&D things. And this movie is called Honor Thy Mother. In 1992, that same year, McGinnis's book was adapted into a two-part TV miniseries called Cruel Doubt. But both television films depicted D&D handbooks with artwork doctored to imply that they had inspired murder. So they changed these handbooks to have like these murder scenes so it would look like D&D players saw them and then killed people, which is so fucked up. Yeah, for sure. With all this happening, uh, D&D was pretty, pretty heavily under fire. And so in the 1980s, TSR, as you mentioned, the company that originally had them, removed all of the references to demons, devils, and other particularly controversial supernatural monsters from the second edition. Devils and demons were renamed as, hmm, Bizatus and Tenari? I don't know. Tenari and Bizatus. Those things. There were those things respectively, and quote, they were often referred to as fiends within the text. Oh, love a fiend. I know. Um, so that's nice. Many fans still refer to them as their original names, but I like fiends. And you would think this would appease the angry mom mob. Like, they relented and they got rid of the devils and they're, like, just kind of doing what they tell them to do. But nope. They took this as an admission of guilt or something called, quote, the Streisand effect, which is a fun term I just learned. The Streisand effect is a phenomenon that occurs when an attempt to hide, remove, or censor information has been unintended, or sorry, has the unintended consequences of increasing awareness of that information. So this is one of those things where you're like, if you say, I think you drove your car across the country, and you're like, no, I didn't. But then like, they find Instagram pictures of you driving across the country. It's more likely that people are mad at you and they think you did and just lied. Mm. Right. And then because of that, they're kind of suspect of everything. It's like, oh, you lied about this one location, so you probably also lied about other things. You're not trustworthy. Wait, so is it that you are actually lying or that you're not lying? The Streisand effect is when you have, like, a fact about you or your life. Like, mm-hmm. say, with Barbara Streisand, it was, uh, like, a picture of her home. Mm-hmm. And you don't want people to see that or know it. And then the public releases it. And because you were trying to hide it, they make an assumption about you. 
Right. Okay. So like with D&D, they're like, uh, there's no devils or demons. This is just a game. But then they ban all the devils and demons. And so the public goes, see, it was a problem. Oh, yeah. Well, you were doing something wrong. Yeah. And that's called the Streisand effect, which I love because it's about Barbara Streisand's big ass house. Right. Nice. Eventually, in 1997, as you mentioned, Wizards of the Coast, which is a different, like, I guess, game production company or whatever they do. Yeah, they're just another. They purchased TSR and all the demons were allowed to come back home. Yes. So they got into power and they were like, bring them back. We love a devil. They're great. But by then, parents had turned to video games as a scapegoat for violence and suicide among teenagers. So they were squarely blaming violent video games. However, the American Association of Suicidology, the U.S. Centers for Disease Control Prevention, and the Health and Welfare of whatever in Canada, it's just very short, they all concluded that there is absolutely no casual link between fantasy game playing, no matter how violent, and suicide. Yeah. So D&D didn't do it, and neither did the subsequent video games. But parents really like to have something to blame it on. Yeah. So. Before we go, I guess there are a few little like stranger things, things I could drop into our consciousness. The first is, of course, that like my favorite character in all of Stranger Things, anything uh, Eddie Munson is based on Damien Eccles. Right. Who is one of the people that were accused of the Robin Hood Hills murders, otherwise known as the West Memphis Three. I like to refer to them in context to the kids who died and not the other guys. But he was jailed for years for a crime he didn't commit. Mm-hmm. And so Damien was uh, a dungeon master, played mm-hmm. D&D, and he did the same thing as Eddie, and he had this long hair, and he wore the jacket, and he was accused of a bunch of child murders and leading, like, a satanic cult, which is essentially, like, no spoilers, what kind of happens to Eddie. You can see the rest of it. But, like, that's as far as the relationship goes, as you were kind enough to address. Right. It's, it's loosely based. Yeah, they suggest. Mm-hmm. I'm not talking about the West. Well, yeah, they get, you, today, you so. have to get ideas from things. You do. You need inspiration, mm-hmm. and I totally get that. That's fine. And Stranger Things in the last season does a lot to kind of allude to the satanic panic, but I think they put their own spin on it with, like, their monsters and things. So it's an interesting watch. Now that you guys have all the background information, you can go watch it and go, oh, I see a lot of stuff maybe I wouldn't have seen before. Right. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, because you can, you know, that's the fact that the characters play D&D and they came up mm-hmm. with, you know, they talk about the mind flare. Right. It, that's. Now that Holly has explained what the mind flare is and the right? Demi Gorman, Dem, Demi Gordon, Dem, Demi Gordon, Gorgon, Gorgon, Demi Gorgon. Mm-hmm. Thank you. It's it makes it. I don't know. You're just like, oh, okay. Now I understand how the characters yeah. can almost be so smart in the show because mm-hmm. these are the these are the people that are going to be able to fight these monsters because yeah. they know they have an idea of what they're up against. Yeah. Whereas another person would have no idea. Nope. Yeah, it's it's fascinating. I, I don't think there were any accidents or mistakes there. I think they fully... Oh, no, 100%. They, they picked their things super carefully yeah, and they yeah, yeah. placed it in a time yeah. period where certain things were happening and it just kind of like yeah. revealed itself. Well, they're yeah. genius writers, obviously, but like I just, I thought it was so interesting and I wouldn't have really known if I didn't just decide to go, hey, maybe I'll throw in a bit about the monsters. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh... This could easily be like metaphors for the people at that time who were monsters. Right. 
or like wolves in sheep clothing type mm-hmm. situation. So I, th- I just thought that was so interesting that they kind of picked something that fit in so well. Absolutely. Which I'm sure was on purpose. But anyway. <laughs> yes. I, I just found it. I liked it. I don't. The writers call you. I had no idea. The writers what are I like, why didn't you know all about D and D going in, dummy? And I'm like, oh no, no, none of us knew. But now you know, and knowing is half the battle. Oh my god. So anyway, toast. Toast. Oh boy, this week is hard. I'm so tired, and also there's a billion characters. Well, I would say to the children that thought they were molested. Okay, by yes, very much that satanic or like what was it the like black mass, like a lot of yeah, them. it was like demons that possessed yeah. their teachers and stuff. Yeah, so cheers to those poor children. There's so many characters; it's hard to be like, oh, this person deserves like a, a little boost. To those who were wrongfully accused of molesting children. Yeah. Okay. So, like, I'll make sure I find that podcast as a link for everybody. But the, the, it's so interesting because it goes at it from the man that was wrongfully accused's perspective. So they are talking to this father of several children who never did anything and is suddenly like, well, you're a, like an incestual predator who tried to sleep with his children and, and is worshiping the devil and killed girls and buried them in the desert. Mm-hmm. This guy like never did any of those things, but it was all placed on his head. So it's it's very interesting to see how that kind of unfurls. So to those, those friends. And we have a new patron this week. <gasps> Who is it? Give a round of applause for Jerry. Jerry! Cheers. And if we got caught in a tornado of fear and hysteria, we, we would, would be dead. dead. Thank you for listening to the We Would Be Dead podcast. Hit subscribe now to never miss an episode. Rate and review our show on iTunes. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Would Be Dead Pod. And join our Facebook group to discuss the podcast and more. I like stories. I love snacks. 